the golden girl of UK television, Britain's Sunflower, the girl next door who was a staple in British households live on the BBC. No one expected she would become the center of a murder mystery that has lasted nearly two decades. From a brutal slaying in broad daylight to the years-long fight for answers, her family, friends, and colleagues could never have imagined that they would be making the same call for justice she once made on her television program. This week's episode is The Unsolved Murder of Jill Dando, Part 1. Fills with dread, probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. Well, you discovered this on a flight that we, I say discovered. It's a very famous case, but it came into our sphere of, I mean, we can't know everything all the time, but uh, because you were watching it on a flight and you're like, you got to watch this. Yeah. I don't remember where we were going on tour, but I downloaded it before the plane and was, usually I fall asleep as soon as the flight takes off, but I was riveted. And it's uh, the Netflix docuseries it's three parts who killed jill dando and i had never heard of the case and i was so surprised because she was so beloved and famous and Mm -hmm. just such a shining star but i imagine if we lived over in britain that perhaps we would have but i was just taken with it and i was like we gotta we gotta cover this because it is such a wild case and when cases that are so high profile like this still remain unsolved i i like hamish says Mm -hmm. in the very beginning something in the very beginning has been missed of the investigation and you got to go back to that and i really believe the answer lies there yeah and it's one of those where there's a three-part netflix docuseries but that's not the only source of information. There is so much information. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's 20 plus years of articles, deep dives, coverage, other documentaries, videos on YouTube that people have made themselves. His uh, One of the people we'll eventually talk about, there was a book written called Stand Against Injustice, which I read and was eye-opening. So it's like there's all these different pieces, and it's so maddening when you have such a wide galaxy of information that you can't, you still can't solve it. And it's mm-hmm. almost like you're hampered, we'll hear, by an, a, too much information yeah. makes it too clouded. And that's probably might be why we're still where we are. Yeah, that and when we see these high profile cases, there's such an immediate need to pin it on someone yeah. uh, because of the pressure from the public and the media and the, you know, the higher ups at the police force that oftentimes... They get the wrong person. Yeah, and it's like you're so desperate for an answer, you seem like you don't care if it's the right one. So we'll see mm-hmm. all the twists and turns that the investigation takes. But, I mean, we fall in love with a lot of our, our subjects that we talk about. And, you know, more recently, Peggy Klinky. I mean, mm-hmm. Ellen Greenberg. Like, you just – you get to know a person through – following their case and Jill is no different. And I think you all will fall in love with her both hopefully through our description of her, but if you go and watch the Netflix series, because she just has something. 
You can't, I can't even yeah. describe it. She just has something that you're like, I'm in love with you. Like the first second you see her, you're just mm-hmm. like, I love you so much and I want you to have everything great in the world. <laughs> it's that warmth that just radiates from her. It's like a genuine warmth mm-hmm. that is really hard to come through on a TV screen and she nailed it. It's cliche, but literally she lit up a room. Like yeah, yeah. she, <laughs> I mean, she had lit up. That- a million a smile. Yeah. Yeah. She had that she smile and just like the natural ability to be compassionate and relatable, even though she was famous. And I think a lot of that came from that she grew up, you know, not poor, but you know, you know, humble. modest, modest, humble. And she never let the fame get to her. And mm-hmm. she just was a shining star. Um, I'd never heard of her. And yes, listen to this, but you've got to go watch her on screen because seeing her in her element and interviewing or on the travel series she hosted it's just like you said you just watch you're like oh i want to be friends with you i i'd like you to tell me everything (laughs) all the news in my life because your voice is so soothing and just like the the quintessential classic like english accent Mm -hmm. she's beautiful cheeky she's a little cheeky and funny yeah, yeah yeah but at the same time you know, she, it wasn't easy for women to be in that mm-hmm. industry now, but especially then. And she really handled it in stride and still stood up for herself while like kind of maintaining this likability with everybody in a very calculated way. Yeah. She had grace. You don't want too much grace or you'll <laughs> fall over, but she had just enough, you know, it was just she graceful a lot of grace and yeah. funny and like can recover from things even when she got hit with some misogynistic questions or faced with some pushback because she was a woman in the industry of being like, nope, I'll just be doing my job now. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So I I hope I do. The very few quotes we have from her, though, I hope I do her justice. Yes. So go watch anything you can get your hands on of her. If you're from the UK, I'm sure that you're familiar with her and Mm -hmm. we're just now catching up. So that's on us. But um, yeah, it's going to be a two-parter because this is a this is a wild story, unsolved mystery and wrongful conviction. So we'll uh, we'll cover it all. Yes. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather, and let's get into it. Jill Wendy Dando was born on November 9th, nineteen sixty one, to parents Jack, a journalist, and Winifred in Western Supermare, Somerset, England. She had one sibling, her brother Nigel, who was nine years her senior. Born with a heart defect, Jill was often sick as a child. At only eight years old, she underwent necessary life-saving surgery. The pioneering surgery was risky. Indeed, Jill was one of the first patients at the time to survive the operation, according to University College London's official website. Jill's health improved greatly, and she quickly caught up in her studies at school, even being voted head girl at her sixth-form college. Having grown up with a journalist's father, Jill's interest in reporting the news and current events blossomed at an early age. In a later interview, she told the host, Television in some way had always fascinated me from the year dot. I think I was about eight years old and I'd have my four library tickets and go down to the library every week and get books about television. Following her passion, Jill attended journalism college in Cardiff, the capital city of Wales. And it seemed like they just had a happy little family, you know, mm-hmm. trips on the beach. Nigel's like sand in our sandwiches. And that was just like part of it. And, you know, your kid sisters kind of wanting to follow in your footsteps. 
Yeah, he also was into journalism. Her mother sadly passed away in 1986 from leukemia. So she um, didn't have her in her later years, but she still spoke fondly of her. I had to look up what sixth form college was oh, because yes, UK and America does grades differently mm-hmm. because America has to do everything differently and confuse everyone. <laughs> so, uh, but from what I can gather, it's kind of like your senior year or what mm-hmm. would be our junior and senior year, but you know, like 17, 18 years old. But a lot of times it's like a two year program that is kind of in a trade of some sort. So she was probably 17 when she get, got voted uh, head girl, which mm-hmm. sounds like quite an achievement. Right? Of all the I'm girls, girl. you're the head girl. You're head girl. Yeah, I always, I, I only know things from like children's books and movies of like the British <laughs> growing up in the, and it might be a wizard school. So I don't know if it's the same, but I think a lot of it does track. But yeah, that's, I mean, she's an achiever at, at an early age, but doesn't ever seem like she's a cutthroat, like do whatever it takes. It's just like, I'm following my passion and mm-hmm. doing what I've always wanted to do. Like being an eight-year-old kid being like, I need to get all four books about television. It's like, well, yeah. that's what she's going to do probably. <laughs> After you've undergone heart surgery mm-hmm. that is very risky and had a low survival rate. Mm. So Especially the back fact then. that she ever came that, yeah, from the very beginning, she was very driven, always very well liked. No one ever had anything negative to say about her. She was just a really likable person, very mm-hmm. kind, warm, outgoing while attending school, Jill also worked her first job as a local reporter with the weekly newspaper, The Weston Mercury, the same publication for whom her brother and father both worked. A natural talent, Jill's career quickly took off. Five years later, she moved to Plymouth to work with the BBC. Soon, she was off to London to host the BBC's morning news program, Breakfast News. Continuing to rise in the ranks, Jill became a presenter for the travel review series Holiday, the 6 o'clock news, and eventually Crime Watch UK, the popular series that aimed to solve some of Britain's most infamous unsolved cases. And she was really humble because just working the local newspaper, it's like, I'm just doing my best. But to have her brother go, I think you you should try. You shoot bigger. Aim higher. You can mm-hmm. do this. Having the support of her family to go... I'm going to go for it. And you see how far she goes. I mean, you go from a small town newspaper, I don't know how small town, but smaller than London and the BBC, all the way up to being like one of the most watched evening programs Mm -hmm. that people like, it's like Unsolved Mysteries for us, like, or America's Most Wanted. We're like, I can't miss Crime Watch. I got to see what Jill and Nick. Yeah. Yeah, Dateline. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 2020. Yeah. It was, it was very sweet that her brother was so supportive because- Sometimes when you're in the same field as your sibling, you might feel a bit competitive, but he was just like, what are you doing here? You Mm got to get out of here. You're destined for things greater than this, you know, and was always just very encouraging. And he, um, to this day, is one of her biggest supporters. Yeah. The the fondness with which he speaks, because he tries to keep Mm -hmm. kind of a a very British journalist, like serious demeanor, but you can just tell the sparkle when he talks about his sister. Yeah, for sure. Described as highly driven, outgoing, generous, and humble, Jill Dando was the nation's darling, telling one interviewer, I'm one of those people who what you see is what you get. Known as the golden girl of British television. She had earned the reputation for always remaining cool under pressure, while still maintaining the warmth to genuinely connect with those on the other side of the television. 
Her then-agent, John Roseman, told producers for the Netflix docuseries, Who Killed Jill Dando? When you're doing the news, you have to be the person that was watching that they think you're speaking just to them. You've been invited into their living room. Jill had that skill. And you can see it, man, on the camera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That news anchors have a very grueling, tough job. I follow a couple on TikTok that will Mm -hmm. kind of just film themselves under the desk as they're going live and preparing. Their day starts so early. They are in charge of doing most things themselves, like hair, makeup, all of that stuff, getting themselves dressed. We all get ourselves dressed, but you know, like wardrobe and stuff. <laughs> yeah, like you don't that. have like a team. Like we think, oh, you're on mm-hmm. TV, so there's obviously like a team around you. And it's yeah. like, no, there's a mirror over there. Did you yeah. bring your makeup bag? And you're like, yeah. oh, okay, I guess I'll do it myself. But that whole like being on, but without being on in a false way of like mm-hmm. the. It wasn't that she was like, oh, hey, it's the news, whatever. She was precise. She was polished, but it was done in a way that you're like. Oh, I can. That's stomachable. I can take that. I trust you. She yeah. was. She had, and someone described her as having ego without superiority. I oh, was like, I like that's that. a very excellent way to put that because she did exude confidence mm-hmm. and class, but never. Never did she come across as full of herself. No, and she went on for the BBC holiday show. She like would go to these amazing places and it always seemed like she was like, Oh, isn't this wild? Like yeah. I wish you were here with me. She talked when there's a clip where she's has a butler come in and she's like, It's like being burgled in reverse. Like they bring you <laughs> stuff here. Like, oh, it makes you feel like you're sitting next to her on the couch and not like, I'm enjoying these lavish vacations. I bet you wish you were here. It makes you feel like you were there with her. And watching her too, like it was when Princess Diana was killed, going around and interviewing people on the street. Mm -hmm. And they said she loved that. And like interviewing kids, like what did the princess mean to you? And hearing their genuine reactions, you can see her eyes well up. Like not a person who was like, well, I'm the reporter and you're the subject. So stay over there. It was like, we're collectively grieving this thing. Tell me how you're feeling. Yeah, she was very relatable, very warm. From 1999 to 2000, Jill was involved in all of the major BBC events. Twice, she was awarded the Television and Radio Industries Club, or TRIC, for BBC Personality of the Year. She had met the love of her life, physician Alan Farthing, in 1997, and the two became engaged in 1999. She was excited about her upcoming wedding, had a tremendously successful career, and was adored by millions. No one could have suspected the tragedy that would soon unfold. Just briefly about Alan Farthing. He was the gynecologist who looked at the queen. So he, uh, I believe he's level. the gynecologist that still looks at Kate Middleton. See, he's up there. He is. That's <laughs> who you want. Somebody who's so good. They can look at the professional. They are that <laughs> professional and can be that trusted, honestly. Like, yeah. that's a huge honor. It's not just like, oh, yeah, I'm just a doctor up the street. I mean, any doctor is impressive, but a doctor who's taking a peek down the, the old tunnel the down the the queen's channel (laughs) looking at the queen's channel that's uh, an impressive guy i was trying to think of the buckingham palace (laughs) down the old hallway of buckingham palace there yeah i he's gone on to um do tremendous things in fact i Mm -hmm. think he's working on um studies on cervical cancer and how um yeah he's 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 doing all right for himself, mm-hmm. for sure. But you can see it's like the, a power couple, like a beautiful oh, yeah. TV presenter, a handsome doctor. They're super in love. The videos of them together, they're very cute and flirty. I mean, like you would want to be with your fiance. 
But it's just one of those moments where you're like, I'm winning all the awards. I The sky is the limit. I'm going to get married. Things can't. This is perfect. Life is yeah. perfect. Yeah. Sinisterhood will be right back. On the last day of her life, April 26, 1999, Jill was headed back to her home in Fulham in southwest London. She had spent the night with her fiancé, Alan Farthing, at his house in Chiswick, but needed to run home to put paper in her fax machine. Most nights, Jill spent at Alan's house. She rarely stayed back at her flat, and even more rarely slept there. But on this morning, her agent, John Roseman, had been trying to send her something— The machine was returning in error, so Jill left Alan's place in her car around 10.05 a.m. to buy some paper and retrieve her documents. Around 10.03 a.m., the postman delivering mail to Jill's empty flat noticed that he was being watched by a dark-haired man wearing a suit standing on the other side of the street. The postman described the man as looking like he thought someone was going to receive mail, according to the BBC. Two minutes later, a traffic warden on Jill Street began writing down the license plate number of a blue Range Rover illegally parked. The driver protested, so the traffic warden erased the number. Five minutes later at 10.10, the Range Rover followed a woman walking down Gowan Avenue. The woman noted that the driver was a man with dark hair wearing a suit. So there's at least two guys, one standing and one in a Range Rover also, way to be like, don't give me a ticket. And the traffic warden's like, all right, I'll stop writing. I and know, you're like, man. No, you should still write it. I write down license plates in my neighborhood all the time. You could still keep it, but just not give a ticket. But yeah. I mean, at the time, who, you how, know. hindsight's twenty twenty. It's a very well-to-do area. So mm-hmm. the fact that everybody's in a suit seems odd. I mean, if I saw... If all my neighbors walking around in suits, I'd be like, what is happening? Is it the Twilight Zone? Like, why is everybody in a <laughs> suit? In black. But, you know, this isn't also like we don't live in a walkable city where Posh. people walk to and from their jobs. But here, you know, everyone's dressed very nice. It is a well-to-do area. So Range Rovers weren't uncommon. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know. The standing stood out. And investigating, yeah, it, it was some similarities started to take place. It seems like there's some kind of stakeout starting around 10 a.m.-ish. Mm-hmm. A half hour later, around 10.40, another witness noticed a man in a two-piece suit talking on a mobile phone, lingering outside Jill's apartment. Jill, meanwhile, was still at the retailers nearby, shopping for paper and ink for her fax machine, as shown on CCTV footage. At 11 a.m., a blue Range Rover was again spotted parked near the area driven by a dark-haired man in a suit. Between 11 and 11.30, one neighbor noted a dark-haired man in a suit walking down Gowan Avenue, while another spotted him lingering between parked vehicles near Jill's home. Yeah, so it sounds like one of them is out standing in between cars and or in front of her flat kind of monitoring it, which to me, for a place that she never slept at, indicates that they perhaps knew that she was on her way from Alan's house, which the detour to from Alan's house to her house wasn't an hour's drive, but her detour to get paper, they might not have known that. And so they were mm-hmm. like, it's like they were lying in wait ready for her, whoever they are, That the na- enough that the neighbors are like, there's just a guy waiting between two cars. And also, mm-hmm. good job, neighbors, for being nosy. I love a True. nosy neighbor. If, if these 
people were in fact um related sus and related to this then yeah it did seem like they were lying in wait Around 11.30 a.m., Jill pulled her blue BMW convertible up to the curb in front of her home. Her next-door neighbor later testified that he recognized the beep of her car lock as it was the same type of car that his wife drove. Moments later, that neighbor heard a short scream. An assailant had followed Jill up to her doorstep, knocked her to the ground, put a 9mm short automatic pistol up to her left temple, and fired a single shot. Although her neighbor heard a scream, neither he nor anyone in the area heard a gunshot. Around that same time, another neighbor saw a man running away from Jill's flat. She described him as having thick black hair and wearing a waxed jacket. Four other witnesses saw a man running from Gowan Avenue toward a nearby park. He was not wearing a waxed jacket, so police later explained he may have been a lookout. Several witnesses saw a man in a pinstripe blue suit standing at the nearby corner of Gowan and Munster Road in a state of agitation around 1140 to 1143 a.m. He was sweating profusely and looking suspiciously at other people nearby. The witnesses described him as slightly foreign in appearance with marks on the bridge of his nose as if he had been wearing glasses. The Blue Range Rover was captured by CCTV a few moments later at 11.52 a.m., speeding away with only the driver inside. So it's like it could be a lookout that ran one direction. The shooter is wearing, I had to look up a wax jacket, which would be like a leather jacket. Yeah. Shiny. Shiny kind of, yeah. The Range Rover driver in the suit is speeding away, and that's caught on CCTV footage. So, Mm -hmm. and then this person at the bus stop, which is not in a wax jacket, so the person at the bus stop could be related or not, but... The the scream and then people all running, you know, three different people running away at the same time is certainly notable. Mm -hmm. Around 11.40 a.m., a passerby noticed Jill's body slumped over on her doorstep. The person called police and reported what she saw, saying, It looks like there's somebody who's collapsed. Confidentially, it looks like Jill Dando. When the operator asked whether the victim's chest was rising and falling to indicate she was alive, the Good Samaritan began to cry and said, She's got blood coming from her nose and her arms are blue. Oh my God, no, I don't think she's alive. First responders were dispatched to the area. They assessed Jill's condition and put her in an ambulance. She was taken to a nearby hospital, arriving at 12.30 p.m. Though efforts were made to save her life, she was pronounced dead at 1.03 p.m. She was 37 years old. The 911 call of the woman that found her is just so sad and so traumatic. I mean, Mm -hmm. again, when we talk about these crimes and you don't think of, like, everyone it affects, Mm -hmm. that woman's life, I mean, that's... That's, uh, that'll shape you a certain way to walk up on such a heinous scene, especially knowing this is a famous TV personality and you recognize her. You also live in the area, but to be the first one to kind of see that and, and call it in, she was clearly very shaken, understandably so. Yeah. And the first responders, you know, they showed up, did what they could, but a close range gunshot to the side of the head is, I mean, she was probably dead pretty immediately but mm-hmm. they you know they do what they can because they just they don't know at the time and mm-hmm. also that 
creates a little bit less of a blood spatter. So you might be unsure of what happened or how it's just you go into life-saving mode, which on the one hand is great, but on the other hand is uh, very bad for the crime scene because they were just yeah. doing whatever they could. But that meant there was hands and boot prints and shoe prints and fibers and everything touching what would... Uh, but what is otherwise also a pretty clean crime scene if the person just grabbed her with their hand and just only contacted her with the gun and then walked off, you know, whether they were wearing gloves or whatever. But any possible forensics, you just have to kind of write them off. Yeah. Uh, witnesses said none of the people they saw were wearing a mask or a glove. But from evidence, it looked like the assailant had gone up behind her, used their right arm to put around her neck and, you know, do a, a chokehold that was uh, incapacitating, took her to the ground and then uh, shot her on the left side. So he would have used his left hand mm. to hold mm -hmm. the gun. BBC newsreader and colleague of Jill, Jenny Bond, recalled to filmmakers for Netflix how the usually bustling and vibrant newsroom fell silent as word began to spread that one of their own had been brutally slain. Jenny was then tasked with delivering the difficult news on air. Within the past few minutes, police have confirmed that the BBC television presenter Jill Dando has been stabbed to death outside her West London home. She died in the ambulance on her way to hospital. There are no more details at the moment. Later updates would correct that she had not been stabbed, but fatally shot. Because being shot is very rare in this area. So you hear yeah. there's an attack. She was killed on her doorstep. The assumption was, oh, she must have been stabbed on her doorstep. But what a steely personality reserve professionalism it takes to report the death of your friend. Mm -hmm. for, for not just Jenny, who had to do it on the air, but also just everybody in the newsroom. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean... When it's one of your own, it mm -hmm. hits different, you yeah. know? Even Hamish, the chief investigator that we'll get to, he was told it, there was a stabbing. Mm -hmm. And that's what he was expecting, too, because, yeah, unlike America, not everybody has a gun. In fact, most people, especially at this time, didn't have guns. Like, mm -hmm. you, you just couldn't get them, so it was very rare. But I also thought, how interesting that... The media reporting on one of their own still so quickly gets mm -hmm. such a huge fact wrong. Yeah. And that's usually how it happens. The media just picks it up and rolls with it. And then all of this false information starts getting pumped out there. I mean, they did correct themselves, but it's just, uh, it's interesting how even with a case so close to them, like that kind of stuff happens. And we talk all the time about like, the media will just report stuff not really knowing if it's 100% or not. Right. Instead of saying she was killed, we're not sure on the cause of death. It was just, okay, we're going to go with it. So, mm -hmm. and that, that's as we get through this and throughout part two, for a victim who was such a ethical journalist who cared about the, she called it public service work of journalism, to watch how her case was then used and twisted and manipulated by the media. It's it's truly a, like another indignity on top of already the loss of a really great presenter. But then to see that, that her death is then becomes a vessel for the very type of journalism she would never do. Not mm -hmm. that this, I mean, this was just an, the BBC right here was kind of going with the news that they wanted. But later throughout the trials and whatnot, you see like Jill would never have wanted that in, mm -hmm. you know, what we know from what we've researched. A journalist himself, Jill's brother Nigel, was working at the Bristol Evening Post when he learned of his sister's murder from the reports that were pouring in. 
Immediately, Nigel rushed to be with their father, who was unsurprisingly devastated. While at his father's house, a reporter showed up that Nigel knew. Switching back into journalistic mode, Nigel granted the reporter a short interview. In it, he said the last time he had seen Jill was two to three weeks prior to her murder. The family had gathered for Easter Sunday. He said she was in good spirits and excited about her upcoming wedding. And to find out that your sister was killed from the many news stations you have on in the background and seeing her face pop up and the date that she was born and this year next to it is devastating. You just are like, I got to protect dad. Yeah, we've seen in several cases we've covered that the family doesn't find out major news except for watching the actual news. And it's always shocking to me that like nobody called the first of kin before like going public with this because, yeah, to to find out something like that and be at work and have no heads up. And, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. I've I've never really understood how – the family isn't contacted before it's released to the public. Yeah, the only thing I can think is if they called and told Alan since that was her fiance, but still yet, like you would think dad, brother, you know, called immediate them, family. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, or the news was just so hot at the time, you know, it was spreading so fast that they wanted to get it out there and necessarily couldn't call them. But it is such a heartbreaking way to have to to learn about it. And then to immediately within moments be like, I got to suck it up. I got to go and give him a statement. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to go out there. It's just, it's hard. But is it ethical to, even though the news is coming and we want to get it out there, should that be your priority? Or should it be thinking about the family, specifically because she is a TV personality and famous, Mm -hmm. like, and letting them know before you're trying to get a big headline? Personally, I think that's where the priority should be. Yeah, call the family first and don't worry about getting scooped. But that mm-hmm. that would be the only reason why I think they would do it is go, well, we have the news. We better run with it. And it's like, well, let's not be too hasty. But mm-hmm. uh, I'm still glad he was able to tell his father, even though he didn't get that same gentle description of what happened. He had to just hear the, the brutal details that yeah. weren't even right, you know. Sinisterhood will be right back. Police, meanwhile, began canvassing the area and gathering clues. Inspector Hamish Campbell responded to the scene, passing Jill's ambulance as he arrived. He told Netflix interviewers that an attack in Fulham was unusual for the wealthy region of London. Officers gathered anything they could, including the spent bullet and shell casing from a 9mm automatic pistol. Campbell explained to interviewers the high stakes of the situation. It was immediately sort of unfathomable. The concept of any woman being shot in the head in London, let alone a celebrity, was rare in the extreme. Uniformed officers scoured the street and surrounding area, searching in bushes and dumpsters for the possible murder weapon. Police gathered as much forensic evidence as they could, though Campbell called the crime scene heavily contaminated by the rescue efforts. Two nearby witnesses told officers they had seen someone running away from the area, a white man with a thick build, dark hair, and a dark coat. When we say officers on the scene, I'm pretty sure they called in every officer, crime scene, analyst person for, I mean, the street was lined with cops and just people in 
white jumpsuits mm-hmm. looking for everything. And I get it because this is a very unusual crime. She's a celebrity. Like, I mean, it's the whole nation is just shocked. But I think you got too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah, you wonder if then inadvertently someone overlooks something, steps on it, whatever, because of the speed versus the thoroughness. I mean, ideally, you want both because it could have been that the purse, the murder weapon got thrown in a trash bin that was then going to get dumped by a dump truck coming by that was then going to end up, you know, whatever. So you want to try to get it. I get it. But it's also, like you said, you see that many people and you're like, how do you know that they're not, uh, you know, someone, oh, did you already cover that? Oh, I, I bet he already covered it. And then you inadvertently miss it just because there's so many people. But having or just someone, walking around yeah. everywhere and having that many Touching. people touch stuff and walking in and out of stuff. I mean, it. a lot of the shots you see, a lot of people are kind of standing around and I'm like, I, there probably wasn't a ton to do. I mean, it was a very contained crime scene. Mm-hmm. But Small garden. Her garden area was yeah, so little. Yeah, just on, yeah. The, on the front porch. But from the public's perspective, you know, they want to see that everything's being done. So part of me was like, is a little of this for show, just to show mm-hmm. like we are giving all of our resources. Of course, people are, they're still doing their job. But I do think there's something to be said for, when you get that many people trying to help in such a small space, that the risk for contaminating the crime scene goes up significantly. Yeah, if you have everybody working there, then necessarily your best people are there. But also, if it's everyone, necessarily the below average and worst people mm-hmm. are also there. But I think that's a good point of you want to make some kind of a showing because not just, like he said, not just any woman, but a celebrity, but someone was shot in the head in the middle of a morning just literally walking up to there. That is a shocking a type nice of crime. neighborhood. Yeah, from the neighborhood especially. So I think mm-hmm. it was, we got to get everybody out there because everyone's going to, the neighbors and everyone's going to feel nervous. Like, mm-hmm. is this still a continuing ongoing threat? True. Yeah. There's clearly a murderer is on the loose. Literally, yeah. Based on the weapon, the manner of death, and the speed at which the assailant got away, Campbell initially thought it could be a professional hit. Given that witnesses were also describing three men, one driving a blue Range Rover, one running from the neighborhood, and a third walking briskly away from Jill's apartment. Police were unsure whether they were looking for a single suspect or a coordinated assassination effort. Strange, too, was that no one heard a gunshot, though officers speculated there could have been a silencer used. Which they explain are not as prevalent as we're led to believe from the movies, right. especially in a country where guns in general are not prevalent. That would be... So somebody that shoots people for a living probably owns that and not your average hunter or having a a gun that was grandpa's gun that you inherited from the war or something like that. If you've got a nine millimeter and a silencer, it's because you use it and don't want anyone to know that you used it. Or if you're also a trained assassin, you know that putting the gun directly Mm -hmm. against the temple muffles the sound of the shot and also creates much less blowback. So there's not as much blood spatter. Again, that's something a professional could know. It's something Mm -hmm. that somebody that just researched a lot on how to do this could know too. And it seems like just the uh, efforts of, but she's out of the car and within seconds, he's got her by the arm, got her around the throat, got her on the ground and has killed her is very much a highly coordinated bam, bam, bam. Like they are very, either very practiced or they've done it before, but it, it takes skill coordination and speed and i think in at least intelligence insofar as what you're doing so that i think they were not off base thinking this you know could have been 
a, a professional that's done it before. The window of opportunity was so very small. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it's um and when you see the footage of like her garden in the front area, there's really not that many places for someone to hide. Mm-mm, so no. I mean, it maybe behind a bush or something, but but you know, I mean it was just like she walks up and they point out too, which is true. She doesn't have her guard up because why no. would you? She never goes to this house. It's it's a well-to-do neighborhood. It's 1130 in the afternoon. So you're not thinking. You're thinking like, I got to get in there and get my facts thing. And then I got to go do this. So you're not even really paying attention. And before you know it, somebody's knocked you to the ground. Yeah, that's a good point, too, of not having. And I think if the one the killer is one of these men that run away of a you know, clean cut, wearing a suit or whatever, you might go, oh, it's just a guy walking down to the shops at the end of the street. Mm-hmm. People walk down this street all the time. But it's uh, the garden, you're right, is so small that somebody would could not have been, others have argued, the her garden wall is so short, she would have seen someone crouching over it. And also based on the angle of the attack, the person did come up from behind her. And like you said, she wasn't supposed to be there. So it had to have been someone that knew that she was on her way home. Mm-hmm. to a home that she never goes to and why that specific window that morning going to retrieve those faxes. Using witness descriptions, police created a computer generated composite sketch or EFIT of the sweaty man at the bus stop and released it to the public via a press conference four days after Jill's death. Detectives implored the public to call if they recognized the man and asked the man himself to call and allow police to eliminate him as a suspect. Hamish Campbell told reporters at the coroner's court inquiry in early May. There is no immediate suspect and more importantly, no motive. That's why it's absolutely vital we have as many people as possible come forward. While police were short-staffed, hungry journalists descended on the area surrounding Gowan Avenue, knocking on doors and showing the EFIT to witnesses in hopes of breaking the story before police. Sadly, they came up empty-handed. Which at first I was like, you jackals, give them time. But then in in the other side of it, the police are very short staffed. They only only Mm -hmm. have less than 20 officers. It's probably helpful to have, even if the press was like, I'm going to write a story about this. And then you should also tell the police about this. It could have been helpful, but it's wild that that everyone's just like, no, I don't don't remember seeing him. Which tells me he probably doesn't live in the area. Mm -hmm. The Guardian reported in early May that the bus driver who picked up the sweating man from the bus stop came forward and spoke to police. The suspect, who resembled the EFIT photo, had boarded the number 74 bus in Fulham Palace Road and traveled a short distance to Putney Bridge Tube Station before disappearing. Although CCTV footage from the bus would have been helpful in tracking down the man, officers delayed gathering it for unexplained reasons. Once they inquired about the footage, it was gone. Man. This and the license plate number, you just start thinking, son of a bitch. Mm, It's sand between your fingertips of Mm -hmm. like, I had it right there and it's gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they never addressed it in any of the articles I could find or on the docuseries. It was Hamish Campbell generally. I mean, he was losing his hair back then. He's like lost all of it. I was like, this is taking a toll on him. You know, he's just like... Yeah, I'm sure this keeps him up at night. I was like, this is one of those cases that just eats at you if Mm -hmm. you're an investigator and you haven't solved it. Oh, it's a gut punch that the the pain lasts literally forever until it's solved Mm -hmm. or until you die. And you can tell he's just like, 
Yeah, yeah, we should have gotten it. I know, I mm-hmm. know. Because yeah. at least it would have ruled who the the sweating man at the, what a description too. It's like, people are looking for you. You were sweating profusely at a bus stop. <laughs> That's me. Well, I, I would just like to say, if I'm ever at a bus stop and I'm sweating profusely, it's just because I sweat a lot. So I, I didn't do anything nefarious. And if I had to run to the bus stop... I'm probably also panting. So just mm-hmm. please be I'm not a criminal. I'm just <laughs> I just sweat a lot. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's one of those things where in hindsight you're like, were these just people, everyday people? Like, and yeah. based on what happened, everyone's kind of um, you know, drawing conclusions and piecing things together that really had nothing to do with anything. They were all just uh, superfluous or were these people really involved? Yeah, right. It's like, I was just late for work that day and now everybody's mm-hmm. looking for me. Or it's like, he really was, which is a good point of you're an assassin and you got away on a bus, but you never know. That might be a good way to just blend in with the crowd and keep going. Because at first people are like, oh, really? You're looking for a for professional hitman who takes a bus? It's like one of them ran to the park, one of them drove in a Range Rover, and one of them took a bus. That's a great way to split officer resources to get people you know to who, chase uh, different ways. You know who else took an unorthodox form of transportation after assassinating someone hmm. the uh hobos on the train oh the JFK tramps was shot mm-hmm. yes the three tramps that's true CIA i say hobos office. tramps because that's what they called that's, that themselves is. we all know that that's not what we refer to them nowadays no, but yeah not. it could be that they um wanted to blend in we'll get to um more of the theories and stuff in the next episode mm-hmm. of um that goes into more of that. But it is a bummer that there was footage even to just rule sure. somebody out and then it yeah. was lost. Oh, yeah. You want all the evidence you can, whether mm-hmm. it's uh, pertinent or not. It's so wild, too, when they do piece together the CCTV footage of really how you can track someone's every movement, which in this case, cool. Other times, like... Big Brother's always watching. Yeah. She stopped for gas. They see, she goes into the gas station, gets gas. She goes to the place to get the paper and the fax machine. She stops and gets some fillets of fish mm-hmm. that she's probably planning on cooking later that night. You know, mm-hmm. no idea that she's minutes away from her life ending. And they have everything pieced together basically until she pulls up to her house. Yeah, the timestamps like that. Mm-hmm. And now we have, that was 1999. She had a cell phone. We did not have the same mm-hmm. triangulation at, that was as prevalent technology to now you really, not only can they pinpoint exactly where you've been with the footage, but also with your phone if you've got it with you. Uh, but to just, like you said, she's just living her life and walking mm-hmm. around. And the, between that and seeing the Range Rover speeding away too, they did have a significant amount of, evidence from some cctv footage it's just this part was missing so that that could also be a reason why they missed it because they were out getting all the stuff from the shops to see if she had been because they were like how did they know like we said she never comes to this house it was an anomaly Mm -hmm. that she was going to be there that morning surely she was followed from alan's house to the shops and from the shops to home but based on all the footage she was not it was the person who killed her was waiting for her at this apartment that she never went to and i think that's a really big key piece yeah yeah and the range rover like when they say sped away it sped away like like tilted to the side it was taking the the curve so fast so if it wasn't involved they were doing something i mean protesting about not wanting a ticket 
speeding away fast, like all of these things seem very sus. So even if they weren't involved in the crime, something was going on. But it it seems like the Range Rover really had something to do with it. And Hamish said, like, we really uh, focused a lot on that. We mm-hmm. felt like that was a really key piece of evidence. And to your point of they had so much CCTV footage to go through, I think they said they had 430 hours yeah. of footage. For just that short of time. For, that, for those couple of hours to go yeah. through, to comb through. So With 16 I mean, people. <laughs> yeah. And you're, I mean, you're just watching it and watching it. But he kept saying, I felt like whatever we were missing was in the very beginning of mm-hmm. the investigation. Like with that person writing down the the ticket number or something. God, and you, she's just like, I'm going to do this guy a favor, having no idea like later. The whole country is going to be like, you give him the ticket. <laughs> Unless it's me, then don't give me the ticket. Then but you should have give given the him ticket. the ticket. Uh, and Blue Range Rovers were a very popular car at the time. So it's not like, oh, it was this really special paint job in this really special, unique automobile. It was like a Ford Explorer in yeah. the 90s. You know, just kind of everybody has one. So it's like, oh, we've just got 30,000 of those to go through. Like, mm-hmm. that's still a lot of license plates to go yeah. through. In late May, five weeks after the murder, the photo had made its rounds on TV and in papers. Police had a new lead when suddenly a man came forward. He claimed he was the man from the bus stop and resembled the face in the EFIT. James Shackleton, who gave himself the titles of Earl of Kensington, Duke of Salisbury, came forward to explain how he had been in the area gathering wood for coffins. Shackleton, who also called himself Lord Shackleton, despite having no clear royal ties, ran his family's undertaking business in West London. It's a bold move to go to the police and say, I was nearby gathering wood for my coffins. And they're like, He's please come to the station. a character, yeah. to say the least. He later told the Sunday Mirror why he came forward. I was really sweaty and dressed in a suit. In the area near Gowan Avenue that day, Shackleton was no stranger to the law. He had been accused in 1986 of stabbing a man in the neck with a broken bottle, though was later cleared using DNA evidence. He'd been questioned over a stabbing of a woman in Wimbledon Common and later a suspect in a string of killings targeting gay men. Police arrested Shackleton after he came forward and conducted a search of his flat and investigation into his life. This is ain't that about a bitch. So they're like, just come forward so you can be eliminated. Arrest him immediately <laughs> and such as things. It's like, yeah. oh no, what have I done? <laughs> It's, uh, but you, you're the one that went to the police. He also. Lord, Lord Duke of Salisbury. <laughs> like, you know what you've yeah. done, buddy. And I think, too, they were kind of like, okay, she was famous. Probably a lot of strange people were fixated on her. This guy certainly fits the bill for strange. So let's go look yes. into his apartment and see if he has, like, uh, a Joe DiVola style wall. Right. Like Elaine on Seinfeld with, like, just obsessive photos of her. Yeah, he was huge, too. I believe they described him as a, quote, giant of a man. He mm-hmm. was, like, 6'4". I mean, just this towering Lumbering. undertaker. I I mean, I don't want to... He doesn't look like Lurch, necessarily, mm-hmm. but he has Lurch vibes. Yeah, I mean, just kind of large, and but also kind Creepy. of slow-moving. Yeah, just uh, unsettling. And had, mm-hmm. having a lot of... He, it's like he inserted himself into police investigations. Yes. Yeah. And they, 
have footage of him in the docu-series of him making coffins in his uh, garage. And Studio some of them are real little. And he's like, yeah, I was out gathering wood for my coffins. Like, I mean, I guess that's how you do it if you own your own coffin business. I, I didn't know we did them out of wood still. Maybe well, this was back then. I don't know. Yeah, certain ones maybe. But I, even if you are manufacturing coffins made of wood, would you not get them from like a dealer? Were you just in the park? Taking up yeah. pieces? That's the Getting strange part to me. Spare two by fours that were just yeah, maybe. left out or yeah, it's uh it was strange. It's definitely, definitely an odd duck, as Nancy would say. Mm-hmm. Sinister Hood will be right back. For two days in May of nineteen ninety-nine, Shackleton was at police headquarters, later telling the mirror. I was the police's number one suspect. Hamish Campbell suspected a lone, obsessive man may have targeted Jill due to being in love with her. There was one issue. Shackleton was gay. He had no clear signs of being obsessed with Jill, and no evidence at all pointed to his involvement. After two days, he was released, telling reporters, They have a job to do. I don't bear them any grudges. The people I feel sorry for is my parents. Hamish told Netflix that, in retrospect, It was a poor choice to release the EFIT because it distracted the inquiry for many months. However, a former colleague marked Shackleton as a known liar, telling the Sunday Mirror at the time, James lives in a fantasy world. When I heard he'd been arrested for the Dando killing, I thought he was trying to get attention. Still, police held on to the possibility the killer could be an oddball loner similar to Shackleton. Which, yeah, for the police, you're like, this guy turned himself in, and he has nothing to do with it. I agree with this co-worker. I really think he was just trying to insert himself in something, mm-hmm. and then to say, well, I don't bear the police any grudges. You took up their time. Yeah. Knowing you, I mean, were you in the area gathering wood for the coffin, dressed in a suit and sweating? I guess so, but I don't know. It seems like... If you weren't looking for attention and you knew your criminal history mm-hmm. and that you didn't have anything to do with her murder, I would stay the fuck out of it. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to try and get myself in trouble here. But it seemed like he was really looking for like 15 minutes of fame. Yeah. And I don't I mean, because there's no CCTV footage, nobody can say for sure that that was him. He sort of looks like the EFIT because it's mm-hmm. a brown haired guy with kind of a crooked nose. But then also, as they talk about in the series, human being not talk about in the series as we talk about in all other episodes. Human beings' description of people is not always accurate. And Mm -hmm. then this was then put through a computer generator to kind of composite all different suspect or witness descriptions into this like fake person that doesn't exist. So he sort of resembled it. And like you said, was he there or was he not? I mean, even if he was there collecting wood, he clearly didn't kill her. But also, he he could just be 100% lying and they don't have any evidence from the bus to prove that he wasn't. True. Yeah, reporters in the series, you know, we're talking about how they felt at the time that this was a huge break in the case mm-hmm. for this EFIT to be released. And they didn't take it lightly. Like if the police are willing to put this picture out of someone like this seems like a pretty done deal. When in reality, like it wasn't. And it no. kind of fucked things up because now you've got everyone that 
he just looks like kind of a generic tall white dude with brown hair like everybody calling in like oh i know who this is oh i saw him and it's like well he looks nondescript he looks kind of like anybody so there's it wasn't like there was a defining feature that really stuck out so it uh muddied the waters quite a bit and truly for the real killer you're like yes i would like for everyone to think i look Mm -hmm. like that because that's not me and then you just have tips about a nobody yep investigators then look to bbc's crime watch the very program jill used to host to gather more information on what happened The episode, which Jill's former co-host, Nick Ross, called Somber and Surreal, aired 22 days after the crime and implored viewers to reach out if they had seen the man in the E-Fit photo, described as being in his late 30s or early 40s, around 5 foot 11 inches tall, with dark hair, wearing a suit, carrying a mobile phone, and possibly wearing large framed glasses at one point. Ross ended the episode by somberly reminding viewers, This program was her passion, and now, as Jill helped others, we hope we can do the same for her. The irony of this was her passion, and she really felt like she was helping people. I Mm -hmm. mean, uh, in a second, we're going to talk about one of her former bosses slash uh, romantic partners that when she got this opportunity, he was like, I don't like it. I don't think you should be doing it because Mm -hmm. you're inserting yourself yeah, and, you know, I mean, you're helping people be put away in jail, much mm-hmm. like, you know, Robert Stack or... um uh, Walsh. Yes, yeah, like, I mean, who knows who goes after them or how many threats they get because mm-hmm. that's their whole job is to help the public put these criminals behind bars. Right, and, and she, but she saw it as a public service, her duty mm-hmm. that she was helping, because they did. It was effective. When yeah, they would oh, yeah, do episodes, very much. Mo- she's like, moments later, hundreds of tips would pour in, and oftentimes, that's the one key thing that, like, mm-hmm. that that is what unlocks the case, is just, you're like, oh my gosh, I did see a blue Range Rover. Anyway, the license plate was blah, blah, blah. I don't know if it's helpful, and you're like, that was so helpful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, back then... You wouldn't have had cell phone cameras, so mm-hmm. it would have been hard to get something like that. But somebody could have known something. It was a very much like America's Most Wanted and and Unsolved Mysteries. Those shows really do help. I mean, mm-hmm. you get millions of eyes on it that wouldn't have otherwise seen it. And the reach is far and wide of people that you can help versus just like going around knocking door to door. Right? Because you never know if somebody was in town on vacation or they moved or whatever. Mm-hmm. And getting and those tips, they help. But it also... Maybe put a target on her back. Yeah. On May 21st, 1999, Jill was laid to rest in her hometown of Western Supermare. Thousands of grieving fans and admirers lined the streets as the convoy of limousines made their way to the church. Speakers were set up outside the church in order to broadcast the service. One tearful woman told a reporter on the scene, Diana was our rose, but Jill was our sunflower. Another reporter echoed a similar sentiment, saying, Jill Dando was, in the opinion of many in Britain, second only to Princess Diana in terms of public affection. Indeed, the Queen herself commented publicly on the tragedy, saying she was shocked and saddened. As a nation mourned, the police scrambled to find the killer or killers. And on a smaller scale, though, this 
funeral looked like a Princess Diana procession. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are huge throngs of people on either side of the street and all just having that same sentiment of we loved her and we want to say goodbye to her, which is just heartbreaking because, like they said, she should have been in a church getting married. Yeah, her hairdresser and friend is interviewed quite a bit in the series who said she should have been in a church getting married and instead she's in a church getting buried. And it's tragic. I mean, her father, her brother, Alan, are all there. It's a very somber, just thousands of people, most of whom didn't know her. They just knew her from, they. she yeah. was in their living room every week on the TV. But they, you know, when um, you're from a small town like that and something like that happens, like everybody kind of goes out to support. And also her hairdresser on mm-hmm. kind of a, a more charming note, um, when she was, her career was taking off and stuff. Bob Wheaton, who was her partner slash boss, was like, well, you got to lose weight. You got to change your hair. You got to do this, which nobody likes to hear. Mm-hmm. That's the industry, especially back then. And she did those things, but one of them was getting a new hairstyle. Yeah. And she went to her hairstylist and he he was like, I think we should go short. And she's like, should I call my producer? And he's like, no. And then you it cuts to it and you're like, that's the same haircut Princess Di had. And Princess Di also went to this hairdresser and the producer said, who had it first? And he was like, Jill did. Yeah. But they which, have, a, they, they favor each other quite they a really, bit. They do. And you can see why if Diana turned on the BBC breakfast news was like, I want my hair cut like that. Mm-hmm. Martin, why haven't you suggested that for me? <laughs> like she look, Jill looks beautiful. And it's mm-hmm. true. They, they, but they do favor each other, mm-hmm. especially with that very cosmopolitan late nineties fire haircut. Like you yeah. said, you never want to hear that, but she was a little bit more kind of looked more small town, had like a little bit longer of a haircut that was almost a little curlier. And that like sleek short cut mm-hmm. really became her signature look that then became on a more global scale, Diana signature look. And you look back and go, Oh, Diana, J- Jill Dando was so, so uh, influential that she influenced mm-hmm. one of the most influential people in the whole world. Truly, one of the original influencers. Right. In total, police interviewed 5,000 people and found at least 140 who had an unhealthy interest in Jill, according to the BBC. Police also considered those closest to Jill as possible suspects. When she died, she was owed 30,000 pounds by her ex-boyfriend, Bob Wheaton. Bob had been Jill's boss while she was on the BBC news desk, and the pair had dated for seven years. Though Jill was engaged to Alan Farthing at the time of her death, Bob still owed her the sum that she had contributed when he bought a house on the river. Officers interviewed Bob and determined he was financially solvent, meaning he had no need to kill Jill to have the amount forgiven. The sum was given to him freely by the woman he had shared a life with and was not a motive for murder. You can certainly see how police would want to look into that, though. Sure. Especially as she's already engaged to someone else. And it's like, you kind of have this loose end that's still tied up, but he's and like, Hamish, I had plenty of money. Yeah, he was like, I went over and showed them right there my bank account on the computer and that I had plenty of money. I mean, great. He is being interviewed in what I assume is his home, which is beautiful. And I'm sure he does very well for himself. Yeah. But Hamish kept saying, like, there was no motive. Mm -mm. Like, he said, if we could determine what the motive was, we would be able to figure this case out. Mm -hmm. Well, money is a huge motive in so many crimes. 
So it makes total sense to look into that, especially given, you know, they had broken up in like 96, 97, shortly after she had started dating Alan. So the relationship, while ended on amicable terms, like, Mm -hmm. wasn't that old. Yeah, true. And you think, oh, okay, well, if you're with someone else, why is this amount outstanding? And honestly, I think... They were both just really wealthy. And it was like, oh, yes, whenever. It's like, no big deal. Like, And and Bob even said she gave them amount not just as a gift, but because they were in a long-term relationship. And it's like, we're going to share this place together. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily, if you have an amicable amicable breakup between professionals, be like, well, I want my 30 Gs back now. And if you can afford it, it's kind of like a proper thing to be like, oh, when you get around to it. So I can see how on the surface it seems sus. But when you dig into it, it was just like... You're just engaged or not engaged. You're in a long-term relationship and you buy real estate together. That's not unreasonable. Yeah. I think when they're both wealthy and it it would look tacky to like immediately ask for it. And also I think she was above that, but they did. I mean, from what I read, they broke up on good terms and it was just because they both had really demanding work schedules, but you're still in the same industry. I don't think you want to cause a rift with somebody no. that you're going to have to work with, you know, quite regularly by something that really isn't that big of a deal. Yeah, they're just professionals. So you just go, we'll deal with it. Mm-hmm. You think you have all the time in the world. You don't think this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Jill's agent also came under scrutiny. A bit of a wild card by reputation. John Roseman had begun working with Jill just as her career was taking off. He was instrumental in helping her secure the hosting gig on Crime Watch, a gig her ex, Bob, did not want her to take. Jill called the Crime Watch program, public service reporting at its finest, and was proud of the work she and co-host Nick Ross had done to publicize unsolved crimes and bring criminals to justice. Bob feared that she was making herself a target of angry criminals. Roseman had also been the reason Jill was at her flat the morning of her murder. He had faxed her some documents and knew she would be headed that way. Police also learned of an odd coincidence. Roseman was a budding novelist and had completed a manuscript about an agent, much like himself, whose clients started getting murdered. The first was a television presenter who was shot. Officers asked for the manuscript and when the next victim was killed in the book, thinking perhaps someone had read the manuscript and was acting out the murders. They determined there was no lead there, and Roseman was eventually cleared. He explained that he would not kill Jill for personal reasons, but also financial ones, telling Netflix interviewers, Anybody who thought I'd cut off a financial revenue like Jill Dando would have to be insane. This has Michael Scarn vibes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He wrote out, I mean, I'm not, no shade to any budding novelist. That's very sweet that he wrote it about himself. But how fucking eerie, though, that the first crime and that he's like, I thought I was in a dream when police Mm -hmm. are like, when will the second murder happen? He's like, I don't know. I'm not part of this. Yeah. An embarrassing novel. It's a bad look that you're like, oh, also, I have wrote this novel. Yes, (laughs) Anyways, yeah, it looks bad. It looks real sus. But I, I, much like we just said money is a huge motivator, he was Inverse motive. Yeah, yeah, she was his cash cow. So I, I would be very stupid of him to eliminate that. Yeah, for sure. I think he was genuinely fond of her. And I yeah. think she she liked working with him and the descriptions of him. Like we said, he was alive where everyone's like, Roseman's crazy. He's weird. He's a crazy guy. But I think he's just like a really intense, you know, representative. 
Which is what you want. But yeah, he's not going to lose all that money, which is, he says it kind of like jokingly, but you can tell he really is shook, you know, shaken up oh, about yeah. this. Yeah. Several times he has to pause and collect himself. Um, it was, it's interesting because their personalities seemed polar opposite, mm-hmm. but sometimes like Paul Abdul and MC. Scat Cat. I thought it was Scat Cat, but then. You're like, no For way. a second I was like, surely it wasn't Scat cat oh it was and he was very into that but it they was. don't talk about it they don't talk about it but it was. <laughs> but uh yeah opposites attract i suppose sinisterhood will be right back jill's fiance alan farthing was ruled out as well the couple was happily looking forward to their wedding he had no motive and he had an alibi the day of her death With these initial suspects ruled out, police turned to the next possible motive, revenge. Jill had recently made a plea for viewers to donate to Kosovo refugees. The Balkan War in the former Yugoslavia was raging on. On April 23rd, 1999, just days before her murder, NATO forces bombed a television station, killing several Serbian journalists. Jill had been killed on the 26th. The next day, The BBC newsroom, where she worked, received a disturbing phone call. It was untraceable, and the male voice claimed to be Serbian. His message was clear. Your Prime Minister Blair murdered, butchered 17 innocent young people. He butchered, we butchered back. The first one you had yesterday. Even with this new information, police were limited in what they could investigate. They requested information from higher authorities on possible Serbian connections in London. Without more information, they couldn't determine whether it was an official hit by the Serbian government, an execution by a terrorist cell, or just an angry individual who felt he was seeking justice. Her agent, John Roseman, had received a frightening letter in the days before her death from someone claiming to be a Serb. The man was threatening Jill after she made the plea to help refugees in Kosovo. Roseman passed that along to police and also told interviewers that his office received many nasty letters addressed to Jill, mostly from so-called perverts. And yeah, Roseman's like, we'd have to filter her mail because of what she would get. But this is significant, I think, the call and the letter. It could be, again, someone wanting to take credit for something. Mm -hmm. It could be that they wanted credit where credit was due. Yeah, and I wonder because Hamish Campbell throughout his interviews were like, we looked into it, it wasn't it. It just wasn't that. It wasn't that. And I wonder if you, from higher authorities, they're like, we're not going to consider that because, or we know who it is and we don't want to discuss it because of national security concerns. So go ahead, keep spinning your wheels, but we're not going to give you any more information. That would be a really difficult thing is if there were some geopolitical connection that would implicate larger like diplomatic issues that you have the local police kind of trying to figure out who it is. Do you have then people higher up that are like, we don't, you don't need to look into that. It's okay. Yeah. There's a journalist that's interviewed in the docuseries. It's like that it kind of just dried up. They didn't really Mm -hmm. mention it much more after that, but there wasn't really an explanation of like, Oh, we looked into it and discounted it because of X, Y, Z. Yeah. We traced the phone call and it was another Lord Shackleton type. Who's kind of like, you know, just saw the news and wanted to make it about himself or make it, you know, more dramatic or whatever. It's just interesting that both of them were like, Oh, well it's, it wasn't that. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Her position as a host put her in the sights of obsessive fans. 
In addition to packages, she had also seen suspicious people around her flat. Her Crime Watch co-host, Nick Ross, told interviewers in archival footage that she had been annoyed by a person who was stalking her. The police also began checking into viewers who may have been fixated on Jill, or those who she had put away through her work on Crime Watch. After the episode of Crime Watch aired, hundreds of tips poured in. The blue Range Rover spotted on CCTV footage was of particular interest. Most callers had information on a car matching the description. With tens of thousands of blue Range Rovers registered in the area, however, it was difficult to run down leads and tips. The presence of a speeding vehicle immediately after the crime seemed to indicate a coordinated effort, according to Campbell, who told interviewers it seemed to indicate a professional hit, gangland, criminal world, more than one person escaping from a scene fast. The manner in which Jill was attacked indicated an ambush. She had bruising on her upper arm and forearm, so police speculated the attacker pushed her to the ground, placed the muzzle directly against her temple, and fired. This technique is commonly seen in assassin killings, as pressing the gun firmly against the temple muffles the sound of the shot, eliminating the need for a silencer. Similarly, it decreases the amount of blood spatter. After the assailant murdered Jill, he then ran off and was possibly one of the men spotted by neighbors at the time. And that's a good point on blood spatter is if you are going to run through a nice area wearing dark colors, if you do have any, you know, even a small amount of blood on you, it would be preserved for DNA for let you know if you ever got caught later, but it maybe not wouldn't be necessarily visible to the people around you. Of like, oh, that man was wearing a white polo sh- or button down mm-hmm. shirt and was covered in blood. It's like, oh, he was wearing a wax jacket or like a, a cashmere coat, like a long coat that if it's even just a little bit of blood, blood spatter, they wouldn't see it. Or you're wearing the jacket and then you ditch the jacket somewhere. Yeah, throw it out. They never found that, but they did say that one of the men running was seen wearing the jacket and then another one wasn't. Were they Mm -hmm. two different men or the same one who dropped the jacket? Right. A particularly promising lead came from a police informant known only as Mr. James. Hamish Campbell told interviewers that the tip indicated Jill's killers were active criminals, part of a higher-level drug group. Throughout the summer months of 1999, the Metropolitan Police followed up on this lead, meeting Mr. James in person and recording his phone call. The tips he provided matched up to actual criminals in the area. But when police looked into it, they realized Mr. James seemed to be in trouble with these so-called suspects and was using Jill's murder to frame them in order to get them off the streets and off his back. In the end, Mr. James turned out to be lying the entire time. Which it's another situation (sighs) where focus is pulled to this person and other leads are drying up. Yeah. Time and resources is dedicated to something that's going to go nowhere when you already have a small staff and then the real leads you should be chasing down just keep getting further and further away. Right. And it does seem like what what he was said earlier where Hamish Campbell said a professional hit, gangland, criminal world, more than one person. You have someone call you up and say, mm-hmm. hey, you know that theory you have? I have all the answers. You do get hopeful. It's not surprising that they they chase this down. And especially when Part of what he was saying was true. Like, he knew enough to say to, like, keep them on the, you know, that's a good criminal, though. It's like a good fraudster, like lying. You give him enough real information. But mm-hmm. also, if it would have worked out, terrible for Jill Dando case because it would have been the wrong people. But that's kind of genius. If you're a low-level criminal and some higher people are on your back, you're like, I'll just get him put away for something else. Mm-hmm. Then I can get away. 
or it didn't work out that way for him. They found out, and he's no longer with us. Yeah, Mr. James was disposed of because... I don't know. I don't know. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me if that had been his fate. Yeah, especially if he got caught talking to cops that much. Mm Mm-hmm. As 1999 drew to a close, Jill's family, friends, and former colleagues were growing impatient. Her former agent, John Roseman, explained to interviewers... I couldn't understand how there hadn't been an arrest. The most famous TV personality, all the resources, and no one was arrested. Police were struggling with a lack of resources and an overwhelming amount of evidence. With just 16 detectives on the murder squad and other crimes to be investigated, manpower was spread thin. Every tip had to be followed up on, and the publicity of the case generated thousands of them. Which is what her her journalistic colleague said, you know, we didn't want it to go cold. So every time we figured, hey, it's been a few weeks, let's do another article about Mm -hmm. Jill to see if we can generate some more tips, which like on the one hand, very helpful. On the other hand, the police are being just crushed under the weight of all of the information. 400 hours for like 15 minutes of CCTV footage, not to mention like 5,000 phone calls you have to make. Mm -hmm. The one guy goes, how long did it take? Fucking ages. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it took fucking ages yeah. truly to go through it all with only 16 people and that she's not the only person that's getting hurt in that area true yes by new year's day 2000 the police were no closer to solving the case detectives focused on what little forensic evidence they did have while the murder weapon was never recovered a single brass casing from the bullet was found at the scene it included a strange feature Six markings crimped around the top to hold the bullet in the cartridge case. Bullets do not come from the manufacturer this way, with varying degrees of pressure applied to each crimp mark. These anomalies led police to ascertain the bullet was homemade. So if I understand this correctly, it would, like, from a factory, it would be, like, crunch, and it would just be one crunch or to hold the bullet in. This was, like, someone took a tool and crimped it individually, and so that's how they could tell, okay, this wasn't machine-made. This was, like, someone putting it into the shell casing. From what I understood, the um, theory would would be that someone tampered, essentially, with the the gunpowder inside of it mm. um, or perhaps like removing some of it to make the shot even quieter. Oh, okay. I wasn't sure uh, if it was like a blank and they were trying to add gunpowder, like it would be a starting pistol and it was a gun, a, a bullet that would normally not actually fire. And they were trying to I, make a face. Yeah. They a said one. that also the gun, because guns aren't easily accessible over there, um, it could have been a gun that like wasn't intended for that type of bullet mm-hmm. or even like a homemade gun. Wow, and yeah. so the bullet had to be kind of tweaked in a homemade fashion to, to work. There was, there's a lot of theories around that, but what's interesting is I don't think a professional assassin is going to leave a bullet casing at the scene. That's a good point. That's a very Unless good point. Unless it's a ruse, but I still, I don't think that's their style. Or you you leave a homemade bullet casing at the scene because it can't be tracked because it can't be like, these bullets were sold from this manufacturer from this store in London. It was like, oh, I'll use a homemade bullet and they'll never be able to find me. But why wouldn't you just pick it up? I mean, I it was, it was you right run. there. I think you got to run. I, well, you might have to find it. You know, it if was, you want to shoot I mean, her the, and turn and leave. The photographs of it, it was very close to her. Yeah, I wonder. Like right if- there on on by the front door. So I don't know. It seemed like it 
would have been easy to spot. And if you're a trained assassin, it seems like cleanup is probably on your to-do list. Yeah, you you want to, like, leave leave. no trace. Yeah. Yeah. Campbell also had his detectives turn back to earlier leads and reinvestigate any that had been ruled out, which took months. By April 2000, a year on from Jill's death, they had zeroed in on a series of calls received just days after the murder. A woman working at a benefits office reported a strange request from one of their clients two days after the murder. He had come back and asked what time he had been there on the day of Jill's death, almost as if he were attempting to establish an alibi. A taxi driver came forward with the same description of a man who had used his taxi the day of Jill's murder and two days later asked him to confirm when they were together, something the taxi driver found strange. Police finally had a suspect, similar to James Shackleton. This man could also be described as an oddball loner. His name was Barry George. So what do we think about this first part? Yeah, so far it's really, uh, it it shows you that too much information can almost be as bad, if not worse, than not enough information or no mm-hmm. information at all. And a beloved person like this, I'm sure every person that called in after that Crime Watch thing that thought they saw something really thought they were helping. You know, they thought yeah. they were doing something that could be helpful. But you've got these 16 people on the murder squad going, I have to sleep at some point. I cannot keep going through this over and over again. But I think you're right as far as the the right answer was probably there within the first few days. And for Campbell to go, we're going back to the start. Just go mm-hmm. back and look at the tips we got in the first like five days. And just those are the ones we're going to focus on is probably for the best. People's recollections are cleaner than stuff hasn't been destroyed or deleted or whatever. So I don't blame the woman from the benefits office or the taxi driver calling in because that is weird. You have a a horrible murder happening in the area and a person who was in your office at that day at that time going, I was here, right? You can confirm Mm -hmm. I was here. I wasn't on Gowan Avenue, right? And you're like, yeah, Mm -hmm. okay, why are you calling or Mm -hmm. why are you asking? So I I get it why they called that in. Yeah, see something, say something. Mm -hmm. I think everybody wanted to help. It was, I mean, the female journalists said at the time they were very fearful. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, they were already in a misogynistic male dominated industry. And now they're like, one of our own was just brutally slain during broad daylight. You mm-hmm. know, like they were on edge. The residents of the town were on edge because there was a killer or killers on the loose. Like, if it was connected to um, politically motivated or, you know, with the Serbians, there's a whole other mess that you got to get into with that of like, mm-hmm. what are we, are we dealing with terrorists now? There was just so much unknown and so much fear that they were just scrambling for answers. And I think in that scramble, they overlooked some key things that yeah. perhaps would have would have solved it because – it, I mean, obviously, by the title of this, it hasn't been solved. And um, many people, including Hamish, have said, like, I don't think this one's going to get solved. Yeah. Like, I mean, short of a deathbed confession. Right. Like, I don't I don't think anybody is going to come forward with something if the person or persons who did it are even still alive. Yeah, that's a good point. This many years on. But it's especially difficult given the lack of clear motive. She wasn't it wasn't like she was secretly investigating this whole big thing, which some people had tried to say. But a good point that another person made was like, 
if there was like some secret investigation that she was conducting with someone else and that investigation caused her to die, wouldn't you think the other people would go ahead and release the information? You know, she's doing an expose on the prime minister or something in the she was doing a she's yeah. doing an expose on a pedophile ring. Yeah. So and uh, some people thought that maybe, you know, people found out about that and it come after her or, you know, a criminal that she helped put away or the family of a criminal mm-hmm. she helped put away or something. Colleagues. Um, or yeah. The motive was just it, there was no motive. So right. it was all just we, yeah. speculation. And then you I mean, when you start speculating motives, you can come up with a million of them yeah this guy's the limit of your imagination of like well mm-hmm. it must have been this crime watch episode that aired this day this time and i think it's the the confusing part is from the the phone calls to the station saying we did that and like you said that could just be convenience like she was mm-hmm. killed already by somebody completely unrelated to political purposes but you jump in and say oh we did that to take credit for it or or the even the letter not saying i'm going to come and kill you but like oh i can't believe you said you made that appeal i hate you that's very different than and i'm the one that did it but if J- john roseman the, you know her agents getting like stacks and stacks of letters of like not just you know, I'm pissed at you because you put my brother away or you put me away, but I love you and we're going to be together. You and I are going to get together and we're going to get married. And you hear, well, I'll be off uh, crime watch for a while because I'm getting married. So mm-hmm. I'll be on my honeymoon. Thank you. It'd be like, I thought we were in love, Jill. I thought, I mean, that that putting yourself out there as not just an announcer, but a beloved, like they said, you felt like she was in your home with you. Mm-hmm. That can create a fixation that in your own delusional mind, you feel, oh, she's she's leaving me for Alan Farthing. Mm-hmm. She's we're breaking up, even though you were never together, and that could then lead to someone going, well, if I can't have her, nobody can. Yeah, there's a, a psychology term for it, and it, the name escapes me. I'll come up with it by episode two. But exactly what you're describing, where stalkers often they can never meet the person that mm-hmm. they're stalking, especially a celebrity. There was that young girl who was a singer that um recently just a few years ago yeah um she was coming off stage at a concert and a man that had been stalking her she had never met him before never spoken to him just walked up and and shot her in the head and actually the very first minisode we ever did on patreon was about bjork stalker yeah who, you're talking about christina um, grimmy was the the woman christina grimmy yes yeah yeah, yeah. But yeah, and the then, Bjork stalker was eerie. Now he didn't he didn't he kill himself. her, but he yeah. made a lot of threats, but he ended up killing himself. But he had this whole fantasy where he thought she was talking to him through her music and that they were in this relationship when in reality she had never met him, had no idea who he was. Mm-hmm. So mentally unwell people that fabricate like I'm in love with her, we're in this relationship, and then you're like she's leaving me for a physician yeah when it's like she doesn't even know who you are and then the worst of the worst happens no that's definitely i think especially given that she had said to nick oh man there's a guy that's kind of following me and stalking me it's mm-hmm. kind of annoying and this still like we talked about in the peggy clinky episodes you know the stalking was kind of this key issue of the 90s because it was not being taken seriously and it wasn't addressed And not that the, you know, Roseman's office did anything wrong. You know, you don't want to say, hey, we want to go ahead and give you your fan letters from nice, normal people, some kids that want to be journalists. Also, here are people that talk about wanting to decapitate you. I mean, like Mm -hmm. the violent, vile kind of stuff, sexual stuff. Yeah, she did not need to be exposed to that. But Mm -hmm. now I would hope that if there are real credible threats that are 
submitted to either representation or the BBC or whatever, that that is taken seriously and forwarded on to authorities to go like, you need to touch base with this individual who has a loose grip on reality and seems like they have the capacity for violence to hopefully stop situations like this or what happened with Christina Grimmie. Yeah, tragic. And I believe it was Nick Ross in an interview. And it, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, And again, it was the 90s. But of stalking when he was talking about that, he said, like, I don't think she was scared for her life or anything, just kind of annoyed. But honestly, it kind of comes with the territory of this job. And that was and it's like, okay, sir, it's Mm -hmm. easy for you as a man to say that. But you know, as a very attractive woman, who is the light of so many people's lives here, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it hits the same for her. But she, you know, it was no secret that people were uh, stalking her at, at what degree that's not as known. But Many think that that is what happened, that it yeah. it is it was a stalker that just happened to be there. But again, that begs the question of how would he have known she was there unless she really was being followed and they were just really good at it and the cops didn't pick it up on the CCTV footage. Yeah, or somehow uh, her voicemail being hacked or her fax yeah. machine or something where, you know, those weren't super secure back then. Voicemails I read mm-hmm. in in the Stand Against Injustice book. Some uh, people tangential to the case were being uh, followed by the press, the news of the world. That was a Mm. famous scandal that they were listening to people's voicemails to find out where they were and like tracking their phones illegally and things like that. So it could have been that her voicemail happened to have been hacked or her fax machine had been uh, somehow compromised that they go like, oh, well, she'll be here sometime this morning because she got a fax. Um, And then you just think about like now we could get an email like you wouldn't have even had to go there and just how the circumstances of the times created a perfect storm for this to happen to her where otherwise, you know, she, now we would take stalking threats seriously. Now perhaps she wouldn't just be so flippant of people knowing where she lived and being really, it's sad because you should be able to be free in your neighborhood. But Mm -hmm. watching the CCTV footage, this woman was 0% snobby was not like, don't speak to me anywhere. Like she's just shopping in a store. No security. No security. Just walking around. It'd be like if you saw one of us shopping. Like we're just, she just looked like a regular customer. If you didn't know who she was, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't know she was a celebrity. And there's no no bodyguard or security Mm -hmm. or anybody with her. No, and it's sad that you think, oh, well, just because I chose this profession as journalism, I'm going to now have to have a bodyguard or security or whatever. But unfortunately, it sounds like at least at the time there was awareness of someone trying to follow her into the studio. Like, maybe we should have a fence up around the studio. You can't, you know, your car Mm -hmm. can go park in a secure location. And it's sad that you have to have that security, but understanding that it is becoming you know became something necessary but just in the 90s that just wasn't the the thought process you know it was getting there it was becoming more of an issue but it just was not take like you said it was like it's so annoying someone's following me it's not Mm -hmm. i need to i I need to report this i think i'm gonna call it in but it it's just a sign of the times unfortunately it is well in the next episode we will talk about barry george and That is a whole tale in and of itself. Absolutely. Barry George and then um, other theories as to what may have happened because there's quite a few and some that we haven't even touched on that yes. make some sense. Yeah, perhaps some shocking ones as well that uh, I thought that, that are fringe but possible 
mm-hmm. given the evidence. So I'm I look forward to us uh, discussing not only the trials and all that, but as well as the theories in part two. But thank you yes. for watching this Netflix show and for bringing it to my attention because I'd never heard of it, and I think my life is better knowing who Jill Dando was. Oh, I do. I agree. She was a treasure and a life taken way too soon, senselessly. And again, if you haven't watched the documentary. Go watch it. It's very well done. And also, um, just look up on YouTube some of the stuff she did. Like, that has nothing to do with the documentary. You know, yeah. like her, the holiday, the travel yeah. review show. She's so cute She reminded on that. me of, oh gosh, the American that did a similar show, Samantha B. Oh, like, Sam- uh, she's kind of a comedian that did like a late night show. I am not That's thinking Samantha of the B. right person. She's from then. The Daily Show, and then she had oh, her own okay. show on no, TBS. Okay, no, it's not Samantha B. It's oh man, she had a travel review show like on the Travel Channel in probably the early to mid two thousands, and then I recently saw she came up on my for you page on TikTok, and I was like, <laughs> huh, I haven't thought about you in a minute. What are you doing around here, Samantha Brown? Okay, yes, she. uh she hosted Travel America. Okay. So, but similar vibes of like just I'm here a, with a you. woman about town, you know, going around. Yeah, very relatable and kind of you feel like you're there with her and she's not pretentious and taking you on these fun adventures and um, just really like Jill had this uncanny ability to make people feel like they were part of her inner circle and right mm-hmm. there with her. Um just like this warmth radiated from her. Which is so beautiful. That's what we should remember about her. Yeah, and we all deserve that. And sadly, I think it that could have just a, a a person with delusions takes that of she really is talking just to me. Yeah. And, and uh it's the danger of not taking that kind of stuff seriously. But like you said, that's how we'll remember her as uh that warmth that felt like uh, as my grandma used to say, I felt like I was there. And that's mm-hmm. how she made you feel. Absolutely. Well, if you like our free episodes, you'll love our Patreon bonus content. You can join for free to see where we're up to next or dive into over 800 hours of content. We've got a new Judge Christie up. Oh, yeah, We've we got- do. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I want okay. you to know we're saving lives. It's the lives. best thing that's ever happened to this show. <laughs> I if, if nothing ever comes of this, this show. This is your legacy but, now. <laughs> but this update. Yes, I've taken back my Albertson's <laughs> legacy and I'm now declaring that this is my legacy. Hell yeah. You gotta go. <laughs> it's the best. It, it was something we covered. Um, and a listener submitted, Am I the Asshole? Or Judge Christie Grievance. Months ago. Yes. Or a Judge Christie Grievance. And then we got the update of all updates. And, so sweet. Uh, so sweet. I, it made my day. I'm still glowing. I'm still glowing. As I said, <laughs> I am drunk with power because. <laughs> It's, uh, you know, some people um, sit for the bar to become a judge. Others host a podcast. But either way, sometimes when the law comes down, the law comes down. Heather. You were double double gavel banging all day long, <laughs> and you even made him kiss. <laughs> You're like, it's happening. Uh, it's incredible. But, uh, yeah, if you want to be a part of that, uh, go to our Patreon and do it now. Uh, no, whatever day you're listening to this, if it's before February 29th, Day, you still mm. have a chance to save 16% off an annual membership 
That's like getting two months for free. Uh, if it's after that, you still get one month for free. But we're doing a special deal just throughout February. Uh, we still have free trials uh, activated for a limited time as well, where you can, we have join for free, where you're just updated on what we do, and you get one free bonus content a month from the archives. But if you do the free trial, you can join for a week at any level. And then if you cancel before your subscription starts, then you don't have to pay anything. You just binge stuff. Uh, but if you do decide to stick around, stick around before February 29th, so you can get two months free with an annual membership you get so plus much a stuff. week plus a week plus free. A week. that's true that's how you hack it you gotta do the mm-hmm. free trial and then but now i think the week we're letting you stack the deals not <laughs> everybody not- lets you do that we're letting you do that you gotta stack the deal like now though because it does end february 29th that's so true yeah don't miss uh ad free episodes we have our monthly live q a on the 28th of this month wednesday february 28th at 8 p.m central if you want to do a free trial and join the q a and see if you like it feel free to do that also weekly bonus content how we are changing the world with judge christy <laughs> our monthly minisodes <laughs> just that your Not law degree that. came well, clutch I mean. <laughs> into this one too <laughs> they did say i spoke to a lawyer who spoke to a judge so it sounded very dramatic um and effective i'll say it they're was not effective. wrong it was effective. Uh, you also get merch <laughs> discounts for ruling the airwaves and getting into it tier that you can use uh, year-round, even on clearance items in a community of the best listeners on the whole internet like stephanie who's sitting in this amazing church christine stephanie You've made my you made my year. Like so said, thank you, you reclaimed so it. much. I did. Yeah, I feel like this is what I want people to know me for now. <laughs> is it going to trump me shitting in a bag in my car in an Albertsons parking lot? Probably not. No, no. But at least it's out there. It could. Top five. <laughs> top five at least. Maybe it comes in a close second. You know, it's not just like that's the only thing people talk about when they talk about me now. They'll also mention this. Yeah, they'll get both. So make sure you join before February 29th to get the most annual savings. You get two months free with an annual membership. If you miss the deal by February 29th, that's okay. You still get one month free with an annual membership. Perks vary by tier. So uh, head over to Patreon and check it out. And for our recent patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout out. You can head to Sinisterhood.com and click shop on the top banner to check out Sinisterhood merch like T-shirts, mugs like this lovely. So what do we think mug that I'm drinking tea out of Love today? that one. Oh, yeah. You're also wearing a Sinisterhood shirt. Hell yeah, I'm You're ready. in full. I'm in full gear today. Uh, you can even you can shop our merch clearance sale because I'm wearing what I will now call um, almost a limited edition tea. We're almost out of these. This is our... Mm-hmm. Cowboy Skull. You can see it. Our little I love Cowboy that Skull. design. This is one of my favorite designs that we have from our Texas theater show. It's almost sold out. There's literally like less than 20 of them left, I'm told. We also have a handful of the 2023 Full Moon Energy Tour shirts. If you missed out on that during the tour, uh, we're going back on tour. They're just going to say 2024. So you just get last year's for cheaper. And we have a handful of our cover art t-shirts left as well. All of these designs are deeply discounted right now. And you can use your Patreon merch discount as well. So make sure if you're in the getting into it or rule the airwaves tier you go to the pin post on patreon to get your coupon code and stack your discounts we're trying to help you to stack them deals baby it's leap it's leap year it's leap year it happens once every four years so <laughs> you have like four discounts basically to stack on top of each other yeah there it I is was just showing it off uh <laughs> but yeah i love this skull this uh cowboy skull it's one of my it's faves. cool i like the um the yeah marquee. the whole vibe of it and the colors too the it black beetle kind of juicy to me uh beetle Ooh. juicy uh but that's at sinisterhood.com click shop in the top banner to shop clearance while you're on our website, you can also review the show, follow us on socials, and check out the episode description for sources used during our research. You'll also find fun things like topic-based playlists and links to live show tickets. It's We've happening. been told 
within this week, we're going to be getting our new, uh, we've been going back and forth on dates and, and cities. So I think we're going to have it finally, is it fleshed out or flushed out? Fleshed. People like to say I think. fleshed, and I think it is fleshed, but it always makes me feel weird because I feel like I'm talking about a fleshlight. Maybe. <laughs> Which is such a weird leap in my brain to make, but that's just a little insight you got right now. I envisioned it was a skeleton and then you have to put the flesh on it, but why am I doing that? Why isn't the flesh (laughs) on the skeleton's bones? Both disgusting suggestions, but nevertheless, we'll be fleshing our tour schedule out. Uh, shortly, and you're going to hear about it first on Patreon, and then uh, we'll release it on social media. But if you're on Patreon, you'll get the dates first, and you also get first dibs on tickets. So uh, you don't mm-hmm. miss it. Including VIP, which often sells out. Mm-hmm. You can follow us on Instagram and threads at Sinisterhood Pod. Like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. You can check out video versions of our episodes as well as clips from the show on YouTube, although they do drop early and ad-free on Patreon, just saying. But the full episodes are on YouTube and also clips on TikTok. And we're doing some longer clips on TikTok as well because TikTok said to. So go on over and watch, you know, 10-minute clips of Freaky Friday and the show and stuff over there. And if you want us to make a video just for you, go to Cameo.com and search Sinisterhood. Uh, we got a Cameo to do tonight that we got a request for the Corn Skull to be in. But if you want Corn Skull, you want uh, the Blucifer head, which I keep right next to me while record. You pulled that out so quick. The there was just, and the, these are all within an arm's reach of you at all times. Oh my God, hey, McGruff. Hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Oh, he's, he's ready to see you. Or you the got corn the skull. the corn skull. You got the fuck, fuck mouth moon, moon behind you. Yeah, fuck mouth moon. So uh, any of the glory hole moon. Live, is what laugh, they were love. Called. Fuck mouth moon. <laughs> fuck mouth moon. Uh, if you want any of those, go to cameo.com and search sinisterhood and just uh, or tell all us. of them. Oh, God. no one's ever requested all of them. Oh my God, somebody requests all of them. Oh no, they'll be the most unhinged cameo. And then I'm ever just driving seen. to your house and I get pulled over by the police and they're like, "Do you mind if we search the vehicle?" And I'm like, "Normally, no." But you know what? Go ahead. You're like, go ahead. Go ahead. And then they're like, uh, we have some, we're going to need to take I'm you like, downtown. We got some what questions. Is this? <laughs> what have you been doing with that moon mouth? And I'm like, don't fucking worry about it. So go to cameo.com and search Sinisterhood and let us do a custom video shout out. Say happy birthday, happy anniversary. Here's just a lady in a horse head for no reason. Whatever you want us to send. Pep uh, talks. We do a lot of pep talks. We do a lot of pep talks and those are yeah. always a lot of fun. So if you're feeling mm-hmm. down or you got something, a big thing in your life and you want us to give you advice, we love to do it. So, uh, and we can do it through cameo christy where can the lovely people find you on the internet i am on instagram and threads i had to think about that because i've logged into it once on <laughs> uh christy at christy m wallace and on tiktok at christy or gtfo heather i'm on the internet heather versus the world as always the devil rules the airwaves keep it creepy <laughs> corn skull my corn skull <laughs> Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shoutouts. Ashley Quinn. Ellie Wiltgen. Megan Lee. Emily Koenig. Missy Reeves. Rachel Rue. Yeah, that Ashley. Morgan A. Nikki Maples Reynolds. Robin Alvanos Orwig. Aeen. Karen Olson. Brandy. Evan D. Erica. Samantha Preston. Judy Bourne. L. Cody Blaney Hughes. Damaris. Rachel M. 
Molly Feldman Adams. Sharon Spiller. Kimberly Gilbert. Christy. Amanda Razor. Jessica Bow. Sierra Villers. And Magnolia Hammer. Hell yeah. Fuck yeah. These were some fun names. Magnolia <laughs> Hammer. <laughs> so good. I love them all. I still have I love all of these. <laughs> yeah. Heather's yeah. just holding the corn skull. I'm just, I'm just holding Rather it aggressively. <laughs> We're close. We're close. Uh, oh, but yes. Yeah, I love these names. Fuck yeah. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. We really could not do this without you. We hope we pronounced all your amazing names correctly. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. Mwahaha. Sinister.